HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. We are broadcasting live from the Heritage Radio Network TP at the Charleston Wine and Food Festival. Our guests are Rob Mondavi Jr. and Rick Rubel. Rob Mondavi Jr. is a fourth generation winemaker born into one of the most famous wine families in the world. Rob worked in wine sales and cigars. Right? Uh, we gotta love the cigars. Before joining the family business around 2000, he joined the winemaking team around 2004 and took over wine leadership in 2012. Rick Rubel um, is an award winning iconic sommelier at Charleston Grill and a friend of Heritage in the show. He oversees their massive wine program of over 1,300. How many bottles? Is that a good Yeah, 13, 14, uh, okay. 100. The nice thing about Rick is he's not an old guy, but he's also mentored a generation of Charleston sommeliers who we were talking about earlier are also making their mark around town. All right. Thank you for joining us, Rick and Rob. Um, There's the possibility Preston Van Winkle may stop by, but that may not happen. Um, So let's get right into it. Um, Rob, you know, I wanted to ask you something. I'm very curious about this. You're the fourth generation of a legendary wine family. And, you know, that's not to be taken lightly. Um, Growing up around all that history and just seeing everything happen. What compelled you at some point to sort of jump into the business? Because I don't know, and you'll explain this to me. I don't know if you started in it left or you started, you know, in the wine part and then went in and... Give me just a little quick path to where we are today. So, so the nickel tour, how the heck do we get here, right? Right. So, so you're right. You're born into a fourth-generation wine family. It's remarkable. But when you grow up in Napa Valley, everyone's you know, a second, third, or fourth-generation winemaker or involved with a great there's, restaurant. There's no doubt. I'm going to give you the props. I mean, the Mondavi name is sort of royalty. <laughs> you know. 
Uh, it, it, it helps it helps get you a table booking, and that there five bucks will get you a cup That's of coffee. That's all you care right? about, right? So so I tell you what, though, but it was amazing growing up in Napa Valley because you're with the vines, you're you're with agriculture. Uh, we have great farm to table foods there, just as a way of life. But as you're moving through this, you ask the question: Now, how do you, how did you get into wine? So I did start early, and I started early because I love to to duck hunt. And I took the car out when I was about 11, 12 years old, and I got stuck in the mud, and I burned out the transmission <laughs> and, and at, you know, on the ranch there. And when I burned out the transmission, I didn't have permission to take the car. Oh, and boy. my dad said, you're paying for it. And so I started working in the cellars to pay off the debt for the transmission because uh, I wanted to go and, and grab some ducks. So but that's that how I started. that sounds more forced than... You know, I had this burning passion yeah. to be in the wine business. Well, at 12 years old, you know, you, you know, you know, you know, blowing off a couple shotgun shells is very different than, you, you know, go. I'm going to sit down and pontificate over a Cabernet Sauvignon at 12. Right. But, uh, but that was the genesis, and I found that I loved it. I loved being in the cellar, the sights, the smells, uh, you know, the timing of things, the, the hurry up and, and get the barrels ready. Uh, and it's just the aromatics. I can always remember the aromatics of my first barrel that I ever filled and that just lovely, toasty richness. So it was the oak and the wine oh and everything. Oh, my God. Right? Yeah. It's just phenomenal. So that's where you started to, to really fall in love is when you had that opportunity to work there. And then time in the vineyards growing up was was lovely. And time in the vineyards, I worked in the, in the vineyards and pruned and worked on tractors and the whole bit. It was great. But then at some point, you leave. Well, at some point, yeah, we. I definitely. As you get older, I mean, like, let's go a little yeah, later. Yeah, 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 you go through your internships and all that, and, and we had a great rule in our family business. The family wanted five years outside industry experience, outside a winery experience. So, so for me, I went out and I worked a little bit with Southern Wine Spirits, which is a huge, huge distributor, distributor, right. distribution house, and it was great. They gave me my my first formal job. Were you doing sales? Absolutely, I was okay. doing sales, and I was servicing. We have gas stations, kind of like your Parkers here uh, in the southeast, uh, called uh, uh, Cheaper, and so that was my route. Oh, I was boy. servicing gas wow, stations, that's cutting your teeth. Yeah, but it was great though. You know, I was selling vodka and and you know Kessler whiskey by the. By the you know three seven five jugs and I mean with a one point five liter jugs it was great. <laughs> so you do that. You did a little thing with cigars, which I mentioned. Now the cigar. The what, cigar what was era. the compulsion there? I mean, you're a cigar smoker. So this is thought, this is pretty cool. Living. So so Ted Simpkins, who was a Southern Wine Spirits guy, was over at um, at my folks' house for dinner, and George Hamilton was there, the Tan Man himself. <laughs> who, who graced the cover of Cigar Aficionado very early on. Yeah. Well, you know, he had cigar bars in Vegas, right? Didn't know that. It was amazing. And so George says, this is right when cigars are starting to peak. And I was living down in Panama City, Panama, the, next to the equator, not Florida. And, um, <laughs> and sure enough, George says to me, you need to go and get some tobacco. Make some cigars. You're down in Central America. Go to Nicaragua. Go to Dominican. And um, I said, well, what, what the... I don't know anything about it. He says, you know cigars. You know, it's blending, it's, it's flavor profiles, you've smoked cigars. He says, here's a couple contacts. And then when you get your cigars ready, he looks at Ted, says, Ted will distribute them in California and I'll sell them in my place in Vegas. And off I went. Now, were you a casual cigar smoker or? I was a casual s- cigar smoker at the so, time. So, I mean, you knew what you liked, you knew cigars. That wasn't. Yeah, you know, the, the business, lore of the, the Cubans. The cigars was just, you know, new to you and all that. Yeah. So you did that for a few years, though, right? I did that for just about six years. Wow, that's a long time. And it was, it was remarkable. And, and thank the Lord, the liver does regenerate because <laughs> I tested it Man, fully. You're, you're in two 
crazy business, cigars and uh, wine. I mean, you, you need a cleanse like once a year or something. Uh, uh, maybe more than that back in the day. So you, you, why do you back out of the cigar thing? And well, a few reasons to back out of the cigar industry. <laughs> First and foremost, as, as we saw the cigar, the, the boom and bust, right? Right. Uh, that really hit at the end 90s, of 1999 2000, right. and 2000. So that was the perfect time. I had spent five and a half years outside in that business, worked with Southern Wine Spirits, and, and really had a, a lovely run, understanding business, making some money, losing some money, because at the end of the cigar craze, you know, we had inventory we had to get rid of. And it's probably the best lesson was actually losing some money. But then, right. uh, then it was the right time to uh, to close up shop there, and uh, and then applied for a position at uh, at the winery, and the position that they had open at the time was in Atlanta, Georgia, in sales, and so uh, they said if you want a job, you can go to Atlanta or you can wait. So you settled down here. So in I the went South? to Atlanta. There you go. So yeah, that was sort of the entree into that. We'll come back to you. But, Rick, I wanted to ask you, you know, a little about your background. You've been in the market. You've been at a legendary restaurant. I mean, you're one of the true influencers in wine in the market. Um, you've been at Charleston Place, Charleston Grill, how long? Gosh, about, about 12 years. It's been that long. Yes. Just quickly, get me to what got you there. I mean, what were you doing before? Obviously, you had some passion with wine. You were working. Yeah, I was the opposite of Rob. I did not grow up Normal? in wine. <laughs> I did not grow up in a wine family. For me, you know, wine was maybe a bottle of Asti Spumani for the holidays or maybe something German on the table. But for the most part, it was, you know, cocktails around the, the house for the grown-ups. And so wine was not part of my culture at all. I got into, worked in restaurants for through college. And a girlfriend of my at the time um, took a summer abroad program in London and I was like wow that's too just too far away and I wanted to be closer I had met somebody that offered me a job as a cellarman in the uh, south of England at a Glyndebourne Opera House in the south of England so I took it I didn't know what a cellarman was I didn't know what two pounds 75 was but uh, <laughs> sound good to me took it and I found out two pounds 75 spent like about two dollars and 75 cents didn't go very far but I was working like a hundred hours a week and so things were fine and I found out a cellarman was basically just to keep the cellar clean, stock it up, which was, which was fine, too. I was 21. Got to break in somewhere. I got to 10 bar at night, and there they just give you drinks rather than tips, which was fine for me. So kind of self-taught from there on. Yeah, but I also had to open 200 wines a day and taste them, make sure they weren't corked. And so I wow. started tasting things like Chateau Palmer. Le Montrachet, and got to cut my A lot teeth. of Bordeaux and Burgundy. Lot, yeah, it was England, so it was all right. French. Right. Um, I think uh, Sterling was the, was the only California wine out there. And not the, even Mondavi, huh? Not, not yet. Wow, not yet. Um, so it was fantastic. I got to, I got to cut my teeth on, on classics, and they just handed me a book and started studying about what the different vineyards were, and I fell in love with wine. Fast forward a couple years later, worked in restaurants in Michigan, and the company I was working for hired the first female master sommelier, Madeline Trafon, legend, you know, amazing woman to this day. And I worked with her for 10 years, opening up every type of restaurant you could possibly wow. imagine great from experience. Mexican to high-end steakhouses. That's great. So you came to Charleston Grill, what, early 2000s? 2006. Okay, 2006. Yeah. All right, Rob, I'm going to jump back to you. Because we left it where you came back into the business. 
took the job in Atlanta. But at some point, I guess around 2000 ish, or was that too? When did you get back, sort of home, Napa, so, around the family? So I spent two years in Atlanta, 2000 to 2002. Okay. Uh, working sales and and what a great area because I got to cover the southeast. Atlanta's it, it, a cool market. Oh, Atlanta's a cool market. You got to go to Nashville and Birmingham of all places. Drinks out almost every other place in their important luxury tier wines. I well, don't know what's going on there, but they got something going on. Frank Stitt, Frank yeah, Stitt, Frank Stitt, and Chris Hastings, those crazy guys over there. And uh, and so in 2002, I was called back to Napa Valley. And for whatever reason, they put me in touch in, in charge of the hospitality center. So all the visitor tours, tastings, the trade tastings, uh, the, the small private kitchen we have there. And, and they said, have fun swimming in the deep end. And they knew it, they were throwing you in. Oh, it was great. But, you know, this was home for me. This is where we grew up. Right. So even though I hadn't formally worked, um, you know, in the, in the hospitality area, minus doing tours and tastings, uh, you know, I did grow up uh, in Napa Valley, and how I also made some uh, some money on the side was I would work catering gigs, and I was way too clumsy to ever be on the floor. So they put me in the back prepping, and thank God I had some knife skills that that uh, allowed me to be in the back prepping. But God, they never let me near the floor. I was still a klutz, and I love it. <laughs> so you do that, and then about two thousand four. Does that make sense? 2004, you really jump into everything. You start getting into winemaking, yeah. more of the product product. Exactly. So a few things happened between 2003 and four. In 2003, I started a, a small brand called Medusa that focused on Zinfandel with a couple friends. And, and it was really, really small. It was just a you know, couple hundred cases. And, and that was fun. Love making Zin. Great esoteric. Where did you source the grapes from? Family? Valley. No, no. Outside went the family. Did all this outside okay. the family. And then in 2004, we had one of the toughest years for the family ever because the, the, the company was publicly traded at the time. Right. And then the company um, sold. Right. So dad and I left before it sold. We didn't feel as if we could um, right the ship, so to speak, right. for the direction we wanted. And, and we your left dad in, is Michael Mondavi. My dad's Mike Mondavi, a co-founder. Robert right. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we left in June, and then the company ended up closing and selling in, um, in December of that year. And a whole different path started after that, oh. which, which we'll get into. But what I want to talk, Rick, I just wanted to ask you, during your tenure, and I'm going to ask you the same thing, Rob, during your tenure at Charleston Place, which you said is a dozen years, you've seen a lot of change in wine in Charleston in the market. Yeah. You know, observationally, you know, what have you seen change? You know, I think it's almost getting more um, kind of schizophrenic. You've got two totally different um, buying communities that that are looking for for different things. You've got kind of young, younger, natural, higher acid, lower alcohol. Is wine. that the millennial market? Millennial market, yes. Different taste than the traditional market, and not so brand focused, right? More kind of like social group focused. What's going on? What's happening? And a you know, a fun community ready to try all kinds of different things. People now ask for esoteric grape varieties and funky flavors, which is great. But you also have a whole other community that's still drinking bigger, rich wines. So, you know, I love all of but it. But does and that I love mean a place like Charleston Place, 
Charleston Grill, which is, it's fair to say, a traditional restaurant. Right. Do you start slotting more natural wines or, you know, millennial-oriented wines, or you don't have to? No. I mean, the great thing about having 1,300 wines is I don't have to uh, limit them. Right. And I'm a wine geek, right? I love all that stuff, but I'm also, you know, not young anymore, so... Right. You know, I want to give people what they love. And right. so it's not about trying to force what I love onto other people. It's really trying to figure out what they're they're into. And if they want natural wine and high acid, low alcohol, funky, right. off flavors, we've got that. I right. love those too. And yeah, a little bit of it. You could, you could handle all of that. Yes. Rob, the changes you saw, I mean, obviously you grew up around the family. And when you came to 2004, I mean, that's about as big a change as any. The business changes hands. But... I didn't realize. I mean, I knew, but you and your dad got the hell out of there. Right. So, uh, you know, I think your dad and, you know, you at this point became very astute business guys. Um, You started your own branding, importation, a bunch of things. Um, That was the change for you there, but that was also the beginning, right? Right. That was the best jumping off point ever. So the the family business, the Robert Mondavi Winery, was publicly traded in 2004. It sells. Dad and I were out before the end of the sale. And, and we Did that new literally get you away from all the aggravation and press and nonsense of the sale and the family bullshit and politics and all of that? <laughs> you know, I don't think you ever get away from no. the family BS and politics because that's that's part of, you know, family, right? We all have the crazy cousins and the right. nieces and nephews. But it really it makes it great because you know where you're going to stand at any given time throughout the duration of time with a family business. And you may have different points, but you know at the end of the day, your oars are in the water and you're headed for the same general direction. And that's right. what's beautiful about that. But i, I got to tell you what, it, w- it was a big change, but it was the best change because that's where I had the opportunity to go back into winemaking. Because I had been a cellar rat, worked vineyards, uh, worked in the winery, and my wife said, look, I love you no matter what you're going to do here. But you got to figure out where you're happiest. And you always, I usually usually would spend time with Jean Viev, our winemaker in the cellar, and with my Uncle Tim. And she said, when you would spend any period of time with the winemaking team, you always came home more energized and happier than no matter what you sold or what you marketed. So she was a big influence Huge in influence. helping you focus Yep, and so on that's following where, your passion and where you should be. That's where I made a tack Kudos change. Kudos to her. And, uh, and had to catch up. That's why for eight years... Um, I worked with my mentor, and then after eight years of really catching up and focusing, then I took over the winemaking team. So part of it when we started, and now now I'm in charge of it. So let's talk. Uh, Rob brought some wine in, which we're going to taste. Nice. I'm not letting that go to waste. Rick and I, and, you know, we'll all grab a glass. Let's talk about specifically, you know, what you've been working on, the Mondavi family uh, wines. Let's talk about there's a bunch of different I don't know if the word's level, but, you know, in the portfolio. I mean, you make a high-end wine. You make. Talk to me about what's going. Let's talk first. Well, what are we drinking? We're drinking a Chardonnay. Right here, we're drinking uh, our new label. Uh, it's called Emblem Chardonnay. And you, you guys will love this. Petaluma Gap, brand new appellation this year. And this, I mean, literally designated as an AVA? We, we, I didn't have enough... Um, I didn't have enough knowledge ahead of time to know that the AVA would be approved in January of this year. So this this says Sonoma on the label, but it's 100% from uh, within Sonoma County, within a beautiful little area of Petaluma called the Petaluma Gap. So you have this beautiful mountain range with 
crunchy uh, earth under the feet, lots of stones. And you'll notice I'm trying to do something a little bit different here with Chardonnay. I like acid in wine. It's it, good for food. It's good for food. Good for me. Right. What? So this is this is always what's what's best to do is so instead of me talking about my wine, I want to put it back. I was going to throw it to you too. So Rick, our trained sommelier, I want you to uh, let's do an assessment in here. So on the color, it's kind of a golden yellow. Yeah, so you're definitely looking at either something that's got some sunshine or some age to it. And okay. obviously, this Sonoma has a little bit of both of those, but not not overly oak. Certainly, some new French. But we we have about 25 percent new French oak yeah. on here, and uh, and I like that percentage. Uh, excuse me, this was 20. Uh, we the the 2015 was 25. It was too much. We brought it down to 20. Yeah. I love the viscosity from oak, but you know I want to taste these darn grapes in right. here. And great acidity, as you're talking right, so about. I mean, that's what jumps out. So let's go uh, nose. What are we getting on the nose? We're uh, gonna do. Uh, we're gonna do color, nose, mouth feel, and we're so, gonna do palate. So, and we're gonna buzz through them because we want to get to the red. Nose to me is certainly some of those um, vanilla, cinnamon characteristics coming from the oak, but back in there, it's more tree fruit to me. Agree, maybe. Rob. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Okay. Uh, I, I look for the fruit in there as well. I get a little bit of that kind of sliced fresh nectarine, uh, which which I really like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like um, like not overly ripe nectarine, mm-hmm. right? Um, almost green yeah. nectarine. Yeah, so. like the nice firm. I, I don't I don't like uh, respectfully. I don't like slutty fruit. I, I like it <laughs> okay. to be a little firm, a little acidic, citrus. You shouldn't fruits. like slutty anything, but we'll move on. <laughs> Let's go mouthfeel. Ma- mouthfeel. One second. I think I blushed. <laughs> I would say it's medium, medium plus. Got a nice mouth coating. Yeah, it's it's Chardonnay, and it's certainly not shy of alcohol. I mean, medium alcohol. What, 13-ish or something? Yeah, we're not getting 13, 6, 7 on this bottle. Under 14. Yeah, yeah so, absolutely under 14. So, very so it's got some body with, to balance that, that so acidity. We're, we're, we're picking um, a little bit before everybody else that picks in the same vineyard that, that we buy from. This is one of the only vineyards that we buy fruit from. So we're in Napa Valley where we have most of our vineyards, except I don't have the right uh, terroir, soil climate to grow Chardonnay. So we decided to go into Sonoma County and up into the Petaluma Gap to find our Chardonnay. All right, so let's finish up on this wine. Um, you, you alluded to it five more minutes. You alluded to it earlier. The grapes are grown in Petaluma. What's the soil? What's I mean, what are the characteristics being pulled out of the ground, literally? The, there's a lot. There's some shale, there's, shale. Um, which is really neat to see because when it rains there, you can walk into the vineyards, and instead of it sticking to your feet, it's crunchy. Um, and that's really important to me because I have a rocky soil profile, and I think that's where we get a little minerality. The shale definitely gives it minerality. Yeah, definitely a lot nice. of minerality. It's delicious. Um, so this is readily available? No, the the wines not, we're tasting easy. today, you know, we have in limited production. Okay. This is only uh, one. Let me see. I got to. I I think of everything in tons because I'm a wine you know wine geek. <laughs> this is 950 cases. So if somebody was interested, they would go website wise. They would go where? They can go to michaelmondavi.com. So okay. named for my father, Michael Mondavi. And all the wines are there, and you could see emblem. Do you do wine clubs? Do you do? Uh, 
mailing lists. We have wine club mailing lists. We're actually starting a new program uh, really where we're having a curated club because I'm so tired of hearing about clubs where you get sent everything under God's green earth that a winemaker makes. So we're actually having a dialogue with the people in our club and discovering what do you like. So I know that that they're going to want more Chardonnay uh, and if they like the acid Chardonnay, then we, we'll talk to them about Sauvignon Blanc. And so right. we're really trying to make this special for them. And I just don't want to send them everything under right. God's green earth. It's, it's not, not about right. the club. It's about giving people what they want. Exactly. Which I like. All right. So we're going to wrap up soon. But before we do, let's taste the red. Is the red open? Rick, the, you open the, the that? The red is open and ready to go. Let's taste the red. Let's give that assessment. Then I want to ask both of you. I always like to ask my guests some food pairing ideas. What you guys think go well with this. With with the uh, white, yeah. Uh, let's start with the chard. So, um, if you had a classic wine and food pairing, you know, mushroomy, creamy pastas would be fantastic to me. I think uh, with the acidity, I think lobster, especially if you've got a little dose of saffron or something. Rob, that there sounds to play good, off right? The... A little lobster and uh, some emblem. Yeah, that. What else? Kind of the characteristics I'm looking for. Richer seafood, I think, would be. I was going to say, know, like lobster with butter, it yes, would hold up butter, the butter and cream. Oil. Yeah. All right, so we're moving to red. Rob, what are we drinking? Another an emblem red. So we're, we're sticking with the emblem theme. So the emblem Cabernet and Sauvignon and uh, Chardonnay are are really our two staples. And this, the Cabernet Sauvignon, comes from our home ranch. So one of the first things we did when we got started up again is we bought vineyards. And we bought a beautiful 270-acre um, parcel with about 110 acres planted, Cabernet Sauvignon from hillsides, and also sweeps down to the valley floor. But why would I mention that? Why is that even important to have hillsides and valley floor? Hillsides typically have smaller Explain berries, right. more texture, more more um, intense, more intensity, and then the valley floor, the berries tend to be bigger because there's more nutrients down there in the valley floor. So you blend, so a little bit softer, so I can blend my hillside cabernet and my valley floor cabernet with a little bit, and this is what I love to do, with a little bit of petite syrah. That mm. gives that the beautiful violet petal, mm. flower petal aromatic, and the blueberry. Definitely. When I taste it, I'm like, nope, this is not a pure, you know. Definitely not pure. Definitely this, gives it a little uh, interesting nuance to is it. Is this all a state fruit? Is this from up in that eastern slopes? The Eastern Alice. slopes. We have a, a few percent from off of our ranch uh, because I didn't grow Zinfandel, and there's about 1% of Zinfandel in here. I wanted some black pepper in yeah. the aromatics, and then there's just a little Syrah that I pull out of Dry Creek. So it's about 94.5%. Gotcha. Estate, yeah. and thereafter, it's not. Gotcha. So on the color, it's you know it's got that purple dark violet, but it's not that deep opaque. It's got no. it's got a nice color, you know, in the light. So color wise, beautiful. On the nose, Rick. On the nose, it's um, mostly a lot of blue fruits, but um, black fruits and a little bit of red fruit, red fruit like blackberries, plums, um, black ra- or red raspberries in there as well. Kind of gives it a lift. How about mouthfeel? Mouthfeel to me, this is classic Napa Cabernet. So the, uh, and I, I don't know plus, what percentage. You know, mouth filling. Yeah, medium plus, if not full body. This is probably fourteen plus. Yeah, this is like fourteen and change. So we're talking fourteen and change alcohol. It's like fourteen three, fourteen four not alcohol. Too crazy though. No, yeah, and I like to have some balance in wine, but believe me, I want it to be modern. There's so many great Cabernets in Napa Valley. How do I make a point of differentiation? This is a modern in, style, in this? for sure. So that's where we bring in the Petite Syrah. Color-wise, the blend, the taste. I the, mean, you nailed it there. This is our Monday through Thursday. Right. 
Um, and then, Rick, give me some taste no. descriptors. Nice tannin structure, right? So it's it's there. It'll hold up nicely to a steak. Um, what vintage year is this? This is two, 2014. 14. So oh, what a, a killer vintage. Yeah. Was it a killer vintage oh, on the field? It was easy. You had a stretch of nice vintages, yeah. Yeah. All right, so Rick, what are we pairing with? Now, well, all I can it's smell fair is to like, say this is a modern, you know, cab saw yeah. from California, not the classic. I'm smelling all here? kinds of fire roasted grilled fruit food out here, which is making me hungry for a nice steak on the grill. Something absolutely fantastic. Pour this with something like yeah. that would be, you know, right behind the tent. Right behind the tent, we have Sea Island Grills. Right, and and you can smell the oak that they're burning over there coming off. I'm with you. I want a ribeye that's yeah. you know, has a nice low and low smoke to start with, like on a Traeger, and then I want to sear off and get that caramelization. Yeah. Simple food to go with this, I think it would be fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So this is the 2014 emblem. Yes, it is. Just give me some percentages. Cab, it's about how much? Cab, let's let's work backwards. So you got one percent Zinfandel, just for a little cracked okay. pepper. Uh, about four percent Syrah. Okay. And then after that, we've got about six, seven percent Petite Syrah, about the same on Petite Verdot, and thereafter Cabernet Sauvignon. So you're right at about seventy-eight and a half percent Cabernet Sauvignon. So instead of the classic Bordeaux blend with the five blending grapes, this is now the new modern California blend with everything out there that tastes good and you know make Zinfandel, yeah, Petite, you know, all that stuff. Well, nice. You know, winemakers have so many tools today. That, that aren't necessarily blending tools. You know, there's these crazy tannins you can add and all this, this crap. I want it naturally made. So we have the opportunity to select beautiful estate-grown fruit, um, tenured vineyards where we buy just a smidgen from, and that to me is the way to craft wines. That is the way. So this same source is Animo and, the, um, and by Michael? Right. So, so what we just referred to is our luxury tier vineyard. So quickly, let's talk about. Yep. We just drank through an emblem Chardonnay and an emblem Cab Sauv. The family you're involved with makes other, you know, bottlings. Let's just go through quickly. So, so this is our entry foyer, the the emblem which we just enjoyed. What are we and talking? Now, approximate retail. Give me Chardonnay. Approximate retail, forty bucks. Okay. So nice and easy, great price point, but. If you want to step up and spend a little more, you got a wine for me? We, we can step you up. <laughs> okay. So we moved from the northeastern hills of Napa Valley, just above St. Helena by Inkgrade, uh, where we were with Emblem. And now we're going to move about 20 miles to the south, up above Oakville, uh, up above where Paradox is, up above the canyon there called Rector Canyon. And up on top what? in Atlas Peak is where we have our ranch. About 1,375 feet of volcanic uh, elevation up there. And it, it, we produced our Animo Cabernet Sauvignon and M by Michael Mondavi. And it's dynamite. Pretty scary summer you had. We had a terrible summer up there. And, you know, this is the perfect time. So what we just mentioned was the fact that in Northern California, we had terrible fires this October. Terrible. And, and the news, of course, showed how sensational and terrifying it was. 70-mile-an-hour winds, flames that were over 70 to 100 feet tall. Um, one of my buddies as a fireman told me the fire was moving at 250 feet per second on the gust. Wow. It was absolutely out of control. But what we didn't follow up on was to demonstrate that Napa Valley and Sonoma mainly had the hills and the open acreage burn. There are neighborhoods that sadly went, but as a visitor, you have to look to find that devastation. So as a visitor, right. when you come to Sonoma and Napa, it is beautiful. Ready to go. But there's some bad stories behind what's looking good. Oh, absolutely. And got hurt, displaced. 
Atlas Peak was scary. Yeah. Uh, we lost our entire vintage of two th- 2017 uh, Animo and M by Michael Mondavi. Yeah. The smoke damage was so bad that we decided to declassify the entire vintage. Well, I'm, g- I'm glad you guys are okay. And Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. All right, so we're going to wrap up. But before we wrap up, I want to ask you guys a question because you're so deep into, you know, the liquid, you know, wine, wine and all of that. When you're not drinking wine, not drinking Mondavi or Friends Wines or whatever, I know that you're probably, like, sitting in your library drinking tea, reading a book. But when you're not doing that... What are you drinking? This, this isn't like? Falcon Crest. I don't have a library. I know. <laughs> I've got iBooks. So, um, so what, I'm an what old guy. What do I drink? If I'm drinking other people's wines, especially out of Napa Valley. So you Valley, like to taste yeah, through all Oh, I love drinking Napa Valley wines. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of Colgan. Um, I like uh, Benoit Toquette's wines, you know, with Realm. I think he's crushing it. Um, Kirk vengi has been a friend of mine forever. His, his wines are outlying style, which, which are really interesting to me. Uh, but Colgan still is one of my yeah. favorites. Good God, she Didn't just nails it. Didn't they just sell the... Uh, to LVMH? That's right. Who Come owns on. everything else? Right? That woman's going to have more handbags than she knows that's what to great. do with and a great seller. That may be why she sold it to them. I can't think of better reasons. Um, I wanted to ask you, when you were growing up, obviously you said Napa Valley, all that. Was there any person in the business that you still connect to that like kind of pulled you over? You know, Rob? You know, just, Is there somebody that you still remember was like a good guy or something? Yeah, you know, one of the first guys I worked for in the cellar, Tony Coltrane, he started working with our family in 1972. Wow. I was one when he started, and he's still with us today. He transferred over from wow. the old company to work with so us. He and left he my the old Mondavi, and yep. he's with you and your wow. dad and all of that. That's a great story. So, do you, any non-wine stuff you like to drink? Oh, well, our <laughs> mystery guest who Dumb didn't question. show, where's the pappy guy? Come yeah, on. We, we, we were hoping to have uh, Preston Van Winkle on, but he couldn't make it over. All right, Rick, we're going to wrap up. But tell me, Rick is a guy who's around, you know, 13,000 different kinds of wines or bottles and all of that. When you're not drinking wine, because you taste a lot, you taste on the floor, you taste on... What do you like to drink? You know, Iced I'm, tea or what? I really enjoy a kind of uh, ciders, especially from uh, Normandy or something like that, dry okay. ciders. Absolutely delicious. Um, I'm always looking to taste something else, but if I'm just doing a cocktail day off, I love a mag, uh, margarita. Just okay. Fresh lime margarita or a margarita made got, the right way. If I've got money for cognac, same kind of lemon juice base. There you go. Um, when I'm not drinking wine, I'm drinking wine. <laughs> okay. All right, we're going to wrap up the show. I want to thank my guests. I want to thank Rob Mondavi Jr. from Michael Mondavi Family Estate. I want to thank Rick Rubel. Rick Rubel runs the wine program at the um, Charleston Place at the Charleston Grill. Um, Thank you guys for joining us. Rob, thanks for taking the time. Rick, thanks for taking the time. Sam, it's a pleasure. You've been listening to The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We've been broadcasting from the Charleston Wine Food Festival. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Thank you so much.